the Lord in his appointed, anointed rather. Psalm 2 has been called the Psalm of the Messiah, the Prince. And by Prince it means the King, the Ruler, the Monarch. It deals with conflict. The conflict is the Messiah's power versus the sinner's rebellion. And it shows the futility of man trying to oppose God. Actually, the time involved would be not in the time of David, the author of Psalm 2, but when the Lord was born and then was crucified and then began to reign in heaven after his resurrection. It divides itself into four parts, the 12 verses, three verses each one. The first part has to do with the nations are raging against Jehovah and his anointed. And we understand his anointed, of course, is Jesus Christ. The nations are raging against God. The second part has to do God in heaven derides them, those who are opposing him. The third part, the Son proclaims the decree of his sonship and universal authority. Remember, Jesus said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. This is pointing to that. And fourthly, advice is given to the earthly kings to yield obedience to the Lord's anointing. Well, let's take each of these sections one at a time. The first section has to do with the nations that are raging against Jehovah and his anointed. And we've already expressed the anointed is Jesus. And to rage speaks of a violent and uncontrolled anger. And that's what the nations were and are doing about God. Raging. I think a new term in the last few years or so is road rage. Somebody's driving down the highway and somebody cuts him off or he thinks he's been cut off and he's going to get even. You know, that's road rage. Well, this is the same word. It's talking about those who are raging against the Lord. The Lord's anointed. Both the Jews and the Gentiles. That includes everybody, does it not? Are the ones who are raging against Christ. Verse 3, in effect, they say, let us break their bonds. It's talking about the bonds of Jehovah, the bonds of his anointed, Jesus. Let us break their bonds asunder, cast away their cords. We know what we do with cords. Let us be free to commit all manner of abominations. Let us be our gods. No bonds, no bands, no cords, no controls. Because they hate the Lord and the teachings of Christianity. No, this is written back in David's time, but it's pointing to the future. They say, let us do our own thing. We've heard that before, have we not? Many people of, of the earth love not their rightful king, that is, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the reason for this opposition of the, of the sinners to Jesus, to his truth today, is that they just hate the restraint of godliness. Remember Jesus said in John 8 and 31, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. People don't realize that they are enslaved. I heard a preacher on television just the other night or day or whenever it was. 
And he's mentioned, uh, he mentioned some folks who had come to see him in his study and they had a problem. Some of them were drunkards, had a drink problem. Some of them had a, a marriage problem. Some of them uh, drugs or some other kind of addiction. And the preacher said that he would point them to Jesus and to his life to follow. And invariably these people who had a problem said, oh no, I don't want to do that. I want to be free. And the preacher said, those people are just stupid. And that's his word. <laughs> he said, they're just stupid. How is that? Well, they're talking about wanting to be free and they're enslaved. Remember over in Romans 6.16, let me just read that. Know ye not that to whom ye present yourselves as servants unto obedience, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? We're all enslaved. We're all slaves. The Christians are slaves to Christ, and those who are not Christians are enslaved to the devil and to the things that they think they, they have freedom to go ahead and commit sins in. And I'm repeating myself here. The true reason of the opposition of sinners to Christ and his truth today is that they hate the restraints of godliness. So we're not just talking about David's time, we're talking about today and all in between and in the future yet. There's nothing more irrational than the irreligious. Then the second part. God in heaven is deriding these opposers. He ridicules, he mocks, and he scorns them. In fact, it says that he laughs. But the only laughing thing or the laughing matter is the arrogance itself. That's what God is laughing at, their arrogance. He does not laugh at the suffering it will cause before it ends. Lord, not laughing about people going to hell, but their arrogance. It is a laughable thing for man to think that he can simply declare independence from a divine sovereign. Verse 6 says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Talking about Jesus now, the Messiah, reigning in this verse. God did this in spite of all the power of the opposition. God used the opposition to carry out his plan and scheme of redemption. Let me turn, and you might want to follow, over to Acts chapter 4. This is the first place we find the scripture being referred to in the New Testament. And I think uh, Jonathan said there are seven times that it's there, and we'll look at those. But in Acts 4, 23 and 28, the apostles have been warned uh, not to be teaching in the name of Christ. You know, this early time of the church. He'd already warned Peter and John about it, and they didn't pay any attention. They went on to the temple and preached, and here they are. And they return to their own group, to other believers. Let me begin with verse 23 in Acts 4. And being let go, that is, these apostles were allowed to leave the Jewish council. 
they came to their own company and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said unto them. And they, when they heard it, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, thou that didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by thy Holy Spirit, by the mouth of thy father David, our father David, thy servant did say, what did the Gentile, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves in array and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointing. And he brings it right up to date, shows the application here, or at least one application. Verse 27, for of a truth in this city, Jerusalem, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were gathered together, notice in verse 28, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. So here were those who were opposing the Lord's plan of redemption. He speaks about King Herod over the Jews, Governor Pontius Pilate, who represented the Romans. Then he talks about the people of Israel, that would be the Jews and the Gentiles. They were all in opposition to the Lord's plan, but they carried it out. Verse 28 again, to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. Peter says about the same thing over in Acts 2. Let me read verse 23. Him, referring to Christ, being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slave whom God did raise up from the dead. So, God had its plan in, in eternity. That Christ was going to come to this earth. God was going to anoint him, appoint him to be his king, the Messiah, People were going to oppose it, but God's carrying out his plan, even using those who were raging against him. There is nothing more irrational than the irreligious, as I've said. So, <clears throat> let me find where I am. <clears throat> Here I am. Oh, yeah. I want to use First uh, John 2 and 2, where John said, My little children, these things write I unto thee, that you sin not. And if a man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation, and not ours only, but also of the whole world. Well, the propitiation, your version may say expiation. And there's a little bit of a difference between the two words. Propitiation has reference to appeasing God's wrath. If the people don't like that word, they'll use expiation because they don't like to think about God being wrathful. But it also has reference to annulling the guilt of our sins. Appeasing God's wrath and annulling the gift 
the guilt of our sin. And Jesus is the one who has done that. So how silly for man to think that he can overthrow or oppose God's plan. God did that which the enemy sought to prevent. God's anointed was appointed. Look at Ephesians 1, uh, 19-23. Speaks about God's might and his power and his strength when he raised up Jesus from the dead, made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but in the world to come, and put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus was raised from the dead. When he ascended back to heaven, he was crowned as the king of kings. And now he's reigning with all authority. Man in all his wisdom and power did not keep this from happening. Now this psalm is used, we've already looked one place in Acts 4. In Acts 13. Now there's a question here. A lot of brethren, maybe most brethren, think that it has reference to his resurrection. And it does speak about his resurrection, but I've got a question about that because I think perhaps, and I may be wrong, that it, it speaks about raising him up, that he's not talking about his resurrection, but his appearance in history. I'll show you why. In Acts 13, look at 32 and 33. Paul is preaching, and we bring you good tidings of the promise made unto the fathers. Remember the promise God made to Abraham, repeated it to Isaac and Jacob. Those are the fathers and others who followed. 30 mentions that God raised him from the dead. 31, and he was seen for many days of them that came up with him from Galilee. That would be those who became his apostles and others to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses unto the people. Now, back to 32. And we bring you good tidings of the promise made unto the Father, that God hath fulfilled the same unto our, unto our children, so that he raised up Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. That's what we're studying. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then he goes on to say, and... As concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he hath spoken on this wise, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, because he hath, he saith also in another psalm, this would be Psalm 16, thou wilt not give thy holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had his own, after he had in his own generation served the counsel of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So he's talking about his resurrection, but it would appear to me that that's following the other thought. Because he starts 34, after he talks about raising him up, quoting Psalm 2, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, as though now, here's another thing he did. And he quotes two different Old Testament uh, uh, scriptures. The one's from Isaiah and the other is from Psalm 16. So, 
it's not just because of that scripture, but let me look at a couple of other Bible examples. Look in the same chapter, Acts 13 and verse 22, where he uses the same expression to refer to raising up David to be a king, not to raise him up from the dead. And when he, that is Jehovah, had removed him, that's Saul, as the first king, when he removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, to, also, to whom also he bear witness, and so forth. But here's the same expression used for David. He raised him up, made him king. And that's not, of course, talking about his resurrection. There are times when David is quoted, like Psalm 16, 10, and in case of Peter, he said, well, now, we have David's tomb here. He wasn't talking about himself because he's still dead. He's talking about his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, one other example. Let's look at chapter 7, 37. Stephen is preaching, and he's going to be stoned to death after he gets through with this sermon. But he refers to a lot of Old Testament history. And in verse 37, he refers to Moses raising up, God raising up, but notice this is that Moses who said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall God raise up unto you from among your brethren like unto me. And so forth. When we turn over to Acts 3, Peter quotes the very same scripture. In fact, he quotes maybe a couple of more verses. And points to Jesus, not his resurrection from the dead, but raising him up to appear in history as he raised up David. So, that's the way I look at it. We actually find that Psalm 2, this day have I begotten thee, never refers to Jesus' virgin birth. You'd think so. When we turn over to Luke 1 and 35, where Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her she's going to have a child, she's the virgin, and he's going to sit upon the throne of David, he's going to reign over Jacob, and uh, his kingdom will be forever. And he talks about how the Holy Spirit is going to bring about this conception. But he does not use this scripture to refer to that. Well, let's look at other places. Turn over to Hebrews 1, if you will. And we'll see how this scripture is used by, I think, Paul, the writer of Hebrews. Let's start with verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3. Who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification for sins, he's talking about the Son of God, Jesus. When he went up into heaven, he made purification for sins. This is a figurative thing. When he died, he shed his blood, and now he's going to present it to the Father in that sense. To make purification of sins with his blood. Then what did he do? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become by so much better than the angels as he hath inherited a more excellent name than they. For unto whom or which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Which is taken from Second Samuel 7, talking about God's covenant with David. So this, to me, is pointing to the Lord's coronation when he sat down at the right hand of God. Though there is the reference about his being a priest, when we turn over to Hebrews chapter 5, there's a more specific reference. Using this psalm, 
to Jesus becoming the high priest. Verse 1 through 6. For every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men in many in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity and by reason thereof is bound as, as for the people so also for himself to offer for sins and no man taketh the honor unto himself not even under the Aaronic priesthood. But when he is called of God, even as was Aaron, so Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but in that, but he that spake unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has put together both the Lord's high priesthood and his kingship. And uh, let me read a couple of scriptures that bring this out. One is chapter 8 and verse 1. Speaking about his sitting upon the throne. Now, in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Well, here is the high priest sitting down on the right hand of God, which is used elsewhere to refer to his kingship, his becoming the king, the uh, messianic king. But to see them put together, Turn with me to Zechariah, the next to last book in the Old Testament. In chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Let me read those two. 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying... Thou speakest, no, thus speaketh Jehovah of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Well, this is referred to Jesus on different occasions. So he's talking about Jesus. He's the man who is named the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Jehovah. That's the church. Even he shall build the temple of Jehovah, and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon the throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is in heaven. Jesus could not be a priest upon the earth. He could not be a king on the earth. But he couldn't be a priest on the earth because he's the wrong tribe. Hebrews 8 and 4 and 5 tells us that. If Jesus were here upon the earth, he couldn't be a priest. So this is talking about his being a priest, but in heaven. Remember we read in Hebrews 1 and 3 where he, uh, and 4, uh, first thing he did was made purification for his sins. That's what a high priest did. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. So here are these two offices, high priest and king, being fulfilled in heaven. Now the premillennialists want him to come down to this earth 
and establish his kingdom and be king on the earth. Can't do it. He's going to be a priest. He can't be a priest on the earth. So this has reference to Jesus Christ. One other passage in the Old Testament. This is Daniel chapter 7. And let me read verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man, and he came even to, not from, but to the Ancient of Days. Well, who's that? That's the Father. This is a picture of Jesus when he ascended back to heaven. So he came to the Ancient of Days, and what happened? And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed well that was fulfilled when the lord went back to heaven sat down at the right hand of god to become the high priest and the king together now in verse 9, let me go back to uh, the prophecy. Psalm 2 and verse 9 is quoted three times in the New Testament. It won't take me long to finish this. That verse 9 says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what the Messiah was going to do. First reference is found in Revelation 2, 26 and 27. And here it is used and applied to Christians. The other two have reference to the Lord himself. But uh, let me read 26 and 27. This is in the, the epistle that was written to the church in Thyatira. And he that overcometh, that's the Christian who remained faithful to God. And he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my Father. So here he's saying to the Christian that remains faithful, the overcomer, he's going to give him the rod. Well, a rod is usually thought of as that which chastens. Solomon said about parents, you know, using the rod. Don't spare the rod when you're chastening your children. What chastening was accomplished in this context was accomplished by the truth and the gospel with the authority of Jesus Christ shared with Christians who preached it. So he's talking about the Christians who shared the gospel with other people. God was going to give them the rod, and that would be the gospel, to carry that out. Then in Revelation 12 and 5, and I think you find this interesting because it talks about a battle in heaven. And we don't think that it's talking here about the time when the devil was cast out. Though it speaks about him being cast out, that's something different. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time, but let me read verse 5. And she was delivered of a son. And I think the woman here has reference to God's people, Old Testament, New Testament. 
she was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We're talking about Jesus as the, uh, the virgin born. He's the one, as a man-child, who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God, unto his throne, and the woman was taken into the wilderness, and so forth. That might be another sermon. But here are two things we notice. Jesus rules in his spiritual kingdom. And then we're going to talk about the kings of the world. But in his spiritual kingdom, with the scepter of uprightness. Hebrews 1 and 8. The scepter was, you might call it a stick, but that's not very <laughs> dignified. A, a rod that the king used to recognize his authority. David, Solomon, sitting on the throne, they'd have that scepter. Who's the king around? Well, who's got the scepter? And the Lord is ruling with the rod of iron, with the scepter of uprightness. Now, but in the kingdom of the world, like Rome, whoever else you want to think about, he uses a rod of iron to bring to their end as he deems fit. Destiny of all nations is in the hands of the Lord. Revelation 19 and 15 is the other reference. Revelation was talking about the conflict between Rome and the church. Who won the conflict? Well, in 476, that was the, they, they buried Rome fully, finally. But the church is still in existence. The church is here today. Where's Rome? It's gone. And they opposed what we said Rome and the church battling one another in the book of Revelation. And the word of encouragement is God is going to win. The enemy is going to be doomed. They're going to lose the, the fight. All who are opposing the God will. And we can see this in nation after nation that's taking place. Um, and Daniel said so. Let me just read about three short verses here. In Daniel chapter 2, he's telling us that God is in control. Doesn't matter what you see out in the world. The Lord knows what's going on and he's taking care of it. We may not understand all of it. When we turn over to uh, Daniel 2, I'll read verse 21. And he changeth, talking about God, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise.